I don't have to ask, but I'm going to. How are you this morning? Are you glad you came to church? That's what I thought. I am too. Let's pray together as we dive into the Word together this morning. Father, your goodness to us is overwhelming. We thank you most of all for the fact of your presence. God, for the fact of your amazing grace, perfectly, perfectly communicated in your Son, Jesus. God, for the opportunity that we have to gather together to to worship, to to be led into the throne room, to lift you up and to, to remember that you're God and that we're not, and that that is all good. Father, we thank you. We thank you for this gift, this this incredible, imperfect gift called the church that you allow us to be a part of, that you allow us to be, to do. Father, I ask again this morning that you would speak through me. God, I ask in Jesus' name that you would speak in spite of me. And God, that because we've been here today, we would never be the same. And God, because we're never the same It's our prayer that you would use us to make sure that our our families and our neighborhoods, our city, God, this world is never the same because you allow us to be a part of your work, your love, your truth in this world. God, we just, we lift this prayer up to you in the, the name that's above every name, the perfect matchless name of Jesus himself. And everybody in the room said, amen, amen. Amen. Well, unless you've been living under a rock or in a cave somewhere, you know that one of the greatest, one of the most influential bands in music history is the Rolling Stones. Arguably, and maybe not even arguably, maybe the greatest garage band that has ever existed in the history of the world. And as such, the Stones have been plying their trade since 1962. Mick and the boys are in their upper 70s and 80s. Try that one on for size. And the the Stones have become kind of household names. Of course, you've got Mick Jagger and and Keith Richards. You've got Ronnie Wood Charlie Watts on drums, Bill Wyman on bass. And and these names literally kind of just flow out of the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. But there's another name that you might not be as familiar with. A lot of people don't even know that in 1993, the Stones bassist, Bill Wyman, retired from the Rolling Stones. He's not even there. He was there at the very beginning. He hasn't even been with the band since 1993, 25 years ago. And yet, if you ask somebody, they're going to tell you Bill Wyman is the bass player for the Stones. But he's not. As a matter of fact, the guy who's been playing bass for the Stones since 93 is a guy by the name of Daryl Jones. Now, Daryl Jones is not a household name. He's an accomplished musician. He's played with everybody from Sting to Cher and all points in between, but but he's not a household name. And so since 1993, poor Daryl Jones has been a silent partner in the most famous band on the planet. 
Now, he's, he's listed on their albums as a collaborator. But, but in perhaps the, the most unkindest cut of all, he gets none of the royalties from the Stones' hits. He, he's just a collaborator, a silent partner. Your family, like my family, every family that has ever been or ever will be, every family has a silent partner in it. And I, obviously I'm not talking about mom and dad, though that's the lead. We're not talking about the kids. We're not even talking about the dog. Every family has a silent partner, and that silent partner in every family is money. Every family, think about every, forget your family for a second. Think about every family that you know, they have a, a, a financial personality profile. Every family has one like this, and it either happens by design or by default. It happens intentionally or incidentally, but it's going to be there. And this is, this is an interesting fact, but it's even, I think it's made even more interesting by the fact that every single one of us personally has a financial personality profile. Some of us in the room today, or maybe watching online later on, some of us are play-it-safe people. You're one of those folks, man, you're like, a penny saved is a penny earned. We're going to just put this aside. I don't need this right now. And that's great if that's who you are. That's awesome. But there are those other people. These are not the play it safe people. These are the pull the trigger people. The pull the trigger people are like, baby, let it fly and we'll figure it out later. How many of you know a pull the trigger person? How many of you are sitting next to, I'm just kidding, don't raise your hand. Now, here's the interesting thing about play it safe and pull the trigger people. Neither one is right and neither one is wrong. That, that's just kind of how we're wired up. It's part of the personality that we got here with. But God, in his amazing creative genius, in his amazing grace sense of humor, God then pulls people together in marriage. <laughs> and that's where it gets fun. Because I have noticed over the years that most of the time, not always, but most of the time, God will bring together, I think somewhat for his own amusement, a play-it-safe person and a pull-the-trigger person and expect them to go then become one flesh. Knock yourself out. <laughs> I mean, it's fascinating within marriage to see play-it-safe wives and pull-the-trigger husbands or vice versa. Now, what's interesting is it's not the stereotype that you would think it is all the time. It really transcends gender. What I've noticed is this, most of the time, if the wife is the pull-the-trigger party in the marriage, the wife, by and large, in broad-brush generalized strokes, do not send me an email. The wife, who is the pull-the-trigger person, will kind of nickel and dime you to death. Now, if the husband is the pull-the-trigger person in that partnership, if the husband is the pull the trigger, husbands typically pull the trigger on big ticket items. It's the husband usually who will show up with a boat unannounced. <laughs> I know one guy, one time without even discussing it with his wife, no communication or conversation, bought a ranch. <laughs> Please, with everything that is within me, I am pleading with you, do not 
try this at home. <laughs> and yet, with these different personality profiles and the, the play it safe and the pull the trigger, but then there's also what we've learned and picked up from our families of origin. The, the families that we grow up in teach us so much about money, about how to handle it, how to think about it, what to strive for, what to aim for. And as I said, most of the time, it is significantly more caught than taught. It's significantly more just kind of absorbed by osmosis rather than dispensed by conversation and deliberate instruction. And it's against that backdrop that we continue this series we've been in for the last few weeks, Fearless Family. And the fact of the matter is, we, we can't really get at the heart of, of how to live out fearless family in God's ecosystem without addressing the subject of money. And, and money is one of those things that everybody has to figure out. Every single family has that financial personality profile. Here's the beautiful thing about this, though. Our Family's financial personality profile has absolutely zero to do with the money. It has no bearing whatsoever whether you've got a little bit, medium bit, or a lot. It doesn't matter. It is actually not about the money. As a matter of fact, with passion and enthusiasm and a smile on your face, okay? Everybody smile. Turn to your neighbor and tell them, it ain't about the money. Now, have you ever heard somebody say it ain't about the money? I'm just curious. Raise your hand. If you've ever heard somebody say that besides me just now, I, this is a trend that I've noticed. I've never, let me put it positively. Every time I've ever heard somebody say it ain't about the money, they're loaded. It's only really wealthy people who say it ain't about the money. It's usually somebody who has, you know, quote unquote, made it. They've, they've achieved huge professional success, I've never, ever heard a normal person or somebody struggling financially go, it ain't about the money. Because well, guess what? A lot of times it's about the money. A lot of times it's why we get up and go in the morning and go to work. But in God's economy, it is about so much more. I want you to look at Matthew chapter 6. If you've got your Bible with you on a phone or maybe even an old-fashioned book, in Matthew chapter 6, Jesus himself is addressing this subject in the most famous sermon ever delivered. It's called the Sermon on the Mount. It begins in Matthew chapter 5, and it's, it's really kind of Jesus' coming out party as a teacher and a communicator, and he's, he's explaining what his ministry means. He's explaining how this plays out day in and day out. And as you're looking at Matthew chapter 6, I think it's important to take note of something, that if you look at all of Jesus' teaching throughout the Gospels, the words that actually came out of his mouth, the words in red. Jesus talked more about our relationship with money and finances and possessions than heaven or hell. He talked more about our relationship and our perspective on finances than any other single subject. It's almost, it's almost as if he knew that this was going to be a part of our challenge, a part of our struggle in the human condition for all time. Because the fact of the matter is, I've never met anybody who has gotten a grip on finances 
and been able to just put it aside and not have to think about it or worry about it or keep it there anymore. Every single one of us has to manage this subject matter, this, this topic, on a regular, ongoing basis. We have to constantly recalibrate and rethink about where does this fall in our lives, particularly, particularly if we're parents. Because if we're parents, our children are absorbing every single thing in our families. Somebody told me years ago, when I was in middle school, I didn't, I didn't even realize how true this was, children are a seismograph. Children register every little tremor or quake in the family. If, if it's a big trauma, obviously the needle goes off. But even the little insecurities, the uncertainties, the doubts and the fears of parents, those things register in the lives of kids. And so as parents, if you are a parent, if I, if, as a parent myself, it's incumbent upon us to own that responsibility and to realize that we have to understand and appropriate a proper perspective on possessions in order to set our kids up for actual success. And Jesus tells us over and over again how to go about this. This is Matthew chapter 6, verse 21. Jesus said this, Wherever your treasure is, there the desires of your heart will also be. Wherever your treasure is, there the desires of your heart will also be. Now this is a fascinating, fascinating verse because it is both a thermostat and a thermometer verse. What Jesus is saying here is that our finances and how we treat them will set the spiritual temperature of our hearts, of our lives. So he's telling us it's a thermostat. You're setting the temperature spiritually in your life, in your heart based on where you put your resources, which then in turn tells us it's also a thermometer verse. Because the fact of the matter is this is a great snapshot. Just in this moment right now, everybody snap your fingers. In this moment, where my dollars are, where your possessions are, is probably the clearest indicator of where our hearts really and truly are spiritually. I don't mean where we hope they are, where our finances, we want them to be one day, but, but where they are right now speaks volumes to where our heart really is. If you've been here for any amount of time at all, you know that I'm 51 years old, and you know when you turn 50, they, they tell you that you need to go get a big boy checkup. Now, I don't go to the doctor, I, I'm, not because I, I love doctors, doctors are great, but I just, I'm pretty healthy every now and then, you know, I get a cold or the flu or something, but I, I don't go to the doctor, but when I turned 50, they told me I needed to get one, so I went to get a checkup when I turned 51, and when I went into the doctor's office, I sat down, and the nurse came over, and she came at me with this implement in her hand and stuck it in my ear, and I was like, what are you I don't have an ear infection. She goes, no, I'm taking your temperature. I said, in my ear? Everybody knows you take your temperature in your mouth under your tongue for three minutes. She looked at me like I had three heads. She said, Mr. Richard, when was the last time you went to the doctor? I go, man, I don't even remember. She goes, we, we've been doing it in the ear now for a while. So if you'll just sit still, I'm going to take your temperature. She put that little thing... It was like 
two seconds, three seconds. You cannot get an accurate reading on a temperature in three seconds. And the name is Richard. <laughs> and she goes, she goes, no, really and truly, this actually works. I promise you. Your, your temperature right now is 98.7. It's like, man, I got a fever. But Matthew chapter 6, verse 21, that's a thermometer verse. Where, where are you really? Not, not how do you feel, not how do you think you're doing, but, but as a follower of Christ, where are you really? Because Jesus himself said that this, this is a phenomenal indicator. It's not the only one, but, but you can't. You, you can't fake the finances reading. It, it is what it is. And so if you're, you're at peace where your finances are concerned, if, you're, if your finances are in order, again, you may have a little bit, you may have a medium bit, you may have a big bit. It doesn't matter. It's about the heart. It, it's about what you think about. It's about what you strive for. It's about why you work. It's about what's really going on in our heart. You see, here's what Jesus is saying. He, he says, where our finances are allocated, that, that reveals how our heart is situated. Where our finances are actually allocated, that, that reveals how our heart really is situated. We, we, can, we can, you know, cover up a lot. But when it's all said and done, the finances are, are a critical indicator. That, that's, a, that's a spiritual health vital statistic. Now, here's the thing that is so phenomenal about the Christian life. It is the freedom and the hope that Jesus Christ brings into this arena. Man, I wish you could see your faces right now. Y'all are tight. And I don't mean financially. Necessarily, some of you are, but I'm saying, you, you are just like, uh, like, right now, some of you, you would rather I was preaching on sex than on money. But I believe with everything that I have that God calls us, he empowers us to live out of a position of peace and, and a posture of hope in all that we do financially. And it is especially important for families to get a grip on the heart behind the finances. This is what God says in, in Matthew chapter 6. Jesus continues this thread all the way through this section of the Sermon on the Mount. He goes, so don't worry. Time out. Everybody right here, take that, if you don't mind, take the first down. So don't worry. Tell your neighbor like you mean it. Like, like you mean it, remembering Jesus said this, so say it with some passion, all right? Tell them, hey, don't worry. That was good. The 930 crowd was not so good. Y'all are an encouraging bunch. Jesus says, don't worry. Let me ask you a question. This is family here, right? Okay. Let's say in the last six months, how many of us have had a, even a, a question or maybe even a, a concern or, or like a ooh, anxiety about money. Can I just see a show? If you've had even a question about your financial status or situation, 
Jesus says, don't worry about it. Now, he's not telling you to just live this kind of pie-in-the-sky, Pollyanna, just God's going to do it. Be cool, bruh. That's not biblical. You know what else the Bible says? The Bible also says if a man will not work, he will not eat. Ooh, that kind of puts a fine point on it, doesn't it? God is a God of work. Now, it's different if you can't work. If you're unable to, that's a different deal. That's where God has called us as the people of faith to serve and to help those in need. But if a person chooses not to work, then that, that's a whole different conversation. But Jesus says in Matthew chapter 6, don't worry about these things. Here, let's keep going. So don't worry about these things saying, what will we eat? What will we drink? What will we wear? These things dominate the thoughts of unbelievers. But your heavenly Father already knows all your needs. Seek the kingdom of God above all else and live righteously and he will give you everything you need. These things dominate the thoughts of unbelievers. I, as I was reading this and, and preparing and praying through this message, I thought, man, how many times have I gotten wrapped around the axle of anxiety over finances? It, 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 I, I don't think it's just the unbelievers, do you? I mean, you don't have to answer that or raise your hand. I'm just, I'm just putting it out there that, that a lot of us as believers, we do worry about these things. But Jesus said, if you understand the goodness and the power of literally almighty God, and you put his desires first in your life, then he will take care of everything else. He will take care of everything that you need. And I've noticed that, that God also has a way of taking care of our wants. When I was 16 years old, I was growing up in Houston, I, I thought, as I started thinking about approaching my 16th birthday, I thought, if I, if I could drive a Mustang GT, that would be life. You know, and, and admittedly, I had a very narrow view of life when I was 16, sue me. But my point is this. I, I thought if I, if I could drive a Mustang GT, that would just be the bomb. And God took care of my wants. I never drove a Mustang GT. Never parked one in the driveway. But God, over time, helped me to see that he had other things in mind and in store for me, even beyond a Mustang GT. <laughs> that, that, that there were things he wanted to do in me. And because of what he was doing in me, he wanted to do some things through me that, that transcended transportation. And, and I started to see that, that my desire, that, that hunger, that yearning, that longing for the Mustang GT... Really, by the time I was, I don't know, 17, 17 and a half, I mean, I would have taken one for sure. But I, it wasn't like I woke up in the morning and went to bed at night thinking about the GT. God 
God will take care of your wants if you seek first his kingdom, his purposes. The kingdom of God means the authority, the dominion of God in this world, but really in this world means in my life. That, that's where the kingdom of God has to take root. And so to seek his kingdom first means that that is my priority. Did you know that the word priorities didn't even exist until about 100 years ago? It wasn't a, a list of things that were important. It was just priority. That, things that, that, that one thing that is prior, that is before and above everything that comes after. The priority is the kingdom of God and living righteously. See, it's that, that authority of God affecting how I live my life, what I do, the choices I make and the actions that I take. And, and when, when that is my priority, when that is our priority, then everything else falls into place. Everything else miraculously and supernaturally falls into place. So that's why Jesus could say, don't worry about all this stuff. What will we wear? What will we drink? What will we eat? What will we drive? You know, you just focus on the priority of the authority of God and let him take care of everything else. It is this supernatural promise from the heart of a God who cannot lie to you. It is there for the taking. But, but it starts by seeking first his kingdom, his authority, his purposes, and living accordingly to, according to that, and then making sure that it radiates out into every part of our lives. But there are some steps that we can take. There are some, some actual things that we can do. And I think it starts long before you get to Matthew chapter 6. If, you, if you'll go in your Bibles to Psalm chapter 24. In Psalm 24, the Bible shows us where to really and truly begin experiencing this, this financial peace. To, to, to make sure that this silent partner in our families is a help and not a hindrance. In Psalm chapter 24... Verse 1, the Bible says that the earth is the Lord's and everything in it, the world and all its people belong to him. The earth is the Lord's and everything in it. That, that means that all, all of our financial resources, all of our material possessions, ultimately are not ours. Ultimately, they're God's. And so the, the first step towards financial peace is to settle the ownership issue. Settle it once and for all in, in your own mind and in your own heart. Understand that it's all God's. It's all God's. Now somebody right now is silently, hopefully, saying to yourself, time out, preacher. I work hard for my money, Jack. I'm pretty sure the paycheck gets deposited into the account of moi. And that's a great point. And, and that's awesome. But here, here's another biblical principle. Who gave you the ability to go to work? Who, who gives you the mind to be able to put it into practice and, and make a difference in your professional life? 
Who, who gave you the body that allows you to get up and go? Again, you trace everything back, and, and it all goes back to God. He's given you breath. He's given you life. He's given you the ability to earn. He's, he's given you everything. And, and as an expression of his love and his grace and his trust in you, in me, he, he's kind of just entrusted some stuff to us, some things, some dollars, donuts, cabbage, lettuce, dollarinis, simoleons, greens. And, and he says, just, just remember who really owns it. Settle the ownership issue. Make sure that you understand it's not yours, not mine. It's all God's. 1 Timothy chapter 6 says, Command those who are rich in this present world not to be arrogant nor to put their hope in wealth, which is so uncertain. How many of us know that wealth is uncertain? You don't have to raise your hand, but I think we've all been there. If you've been alive for 45 minutes. But to put their hope in God, who richly provides us with everything for our enjoyment. And do you see the freedom in that verse? If God has blessed you financially or materially, it's awesome. Really cool. That's great. Let's just, let's just give a round of applause for those people that God has blessed. Because God has blessed them. That's good. That's, that's, that's all you do. God has, has given us everything for us to richly enjoy. That's okay. So that means that we don't drive down the road going, who needs a house like that? Can you believe that they would spend that much money on a car? No. We go, man, they've been blessed. <laughs> That's awesome. Take some table scraps off of that. That's great. It's not about what they have, because here's the thing that you don't know. This, this is so great. You have no idea what somebody has. You just know what they spend on. You just know what's apparent. It could have been given to them. They could have stolen it. They could have earned it. They could have inherited it. You have no idea. The other thing is you don't know how much it is. You don't know. Somebody's got a house, 40,000 square feet, $22 million. Knock yourself out. They may have three or four hundred million in the bank, and they're tithing. That was funny. You should have laughed at that. <laughs> my, my point is, you don't, it's, it's a hard issue. It's not about the money. It's not about the money. Remember Jesus, what Jesus said? It's the heart. And, and it's certainly not my job. It's way above our pay grade to judge somebody else's heart. So settle the ownership issue. But, but, in order for the ownership issue to radiate out into our lives, we've got to also understand the stewardship issue. The, the fact that what God has entrusted to us, we are now responsible for. We're responsible for it. One time, we were at one of, one of our kids' sporting events. I think it was Joseph's game because Emily came to me. She was like in elementary school. And she goes, Dad, can I have some money to go to the concession stand? It's like, sweetheart, you betcha. Broke out a big old George Washington, dropped it in her hand, one dollar. I'll never forget this. She looked at that dollar. She looked at me. 
She looked at the dollar, and she goes, um, thank you. Can I have another one? Now, here's what Emily didn't know. At that age, she had no clue. She had no idea that in my wallet, I had 40 whole dollars. I could have rained Skittles down on her head that day at the basketball game. She didn't know. All she asked for was $2. I think so many times, God looks at what we ask him for. And in love and mercy, looks back and goes, <laughs> that is so cute. If you had any idea what God could bless you with in ways that would make money look stupid, you would say, God, I'm not going to limit you. I'm going to trust. This is all yours. I'm going to be faithful with what I've got right here. But God, I'm going to ask you to do what only you can do because I trust you. Because I trust you more than I trust myself. I trust your heart more than I trust my heart. And, and that segues powerfully, powerfully into probably the most important thing you can do, the most important thing you can teach your kids to do. Tithe. Tithe. Everybody say it with me. On three. Smiling. One, two, three. Tithe. It's a great word. You can't say tithe with a frown on your face. Tithe. You can't do it. Tithe. The tithe. This is what the Bible says in Malachi chapter 3. Malachi chapter 3. It is not Malachi. The Bible says bring all. Say all. All, all the tithes into the storehouse so there will be enough food in my temple, the place where you worship. If you do, says the Lord of heaven's armies, I will open the windows of heaven for you. I will pour out a blessing so great you won't have room enough to take it in. Try it. Put me to the test. Is that cool? God says, test me. I think in the original Hebrew, it says, bring it. I mean, you, you want to you you dance? Let, let's go. Test God. First of all, trust him. Second of all, test him. The tithe is a statement of trust and test. Test God. And I will just tell you this. I have never in my life, 51 years, I have never met anyone who tithed as an expression of faith, trust, who regretted it. Not one person. Now that's a staggering statistic. I've had a lot of conversations with people who have tried to stay away from it. I've had people who go, well, you know, Mac, Malachi is Old Testament. And grace is New Testament. And we don't want to be bound by legalism. So, and, and I get it. That's a, it's, it's a fascinating conversation. It's just wrong. Matthew 23, 23, which last I checked was New Testament, red letter stuff. Jesus said, the, the Pharisees and the scribes, they're so hypocritical. They, they are so precise about their tithe. They measure out the number of seeds in their seasoning to tithe on. The cumin, the dill that they're going to tithe on, they measure it out. 
But then they've forgotten the most important parts of the law, like love and mercy and justice. And Jesus said, you should absolutely tithe, but also remember the more important parts of the law. So Jesus, who's all about grace and truth, Jesus endorsed the tithe. And, and he said, this is where it starts. That, that's the beginning of financial obedience. That's the beginning of financial peace. But then, man, don't, don't, don't limit it. Don't, don't just say, okay, here's 10%. No, you, you want to watch grace abound even more? Open yourself up to the possibility that God may meet all your needs and then use whatever resources he entrusts you to meet even more needs outside your own house. And then, boy, that's where it gets fun. That's where the Apostle Paul, inspired by the Holy Spirit, said that God loves a cheerful giver. A cheerful giver, that, that word cheerful in the original Greek language that the Bible was written in, that word cheerful is hilarious. True story, I promise you, I went to seminary. Hilarious. Hilarious giving. That's not tithing. Tithing is where it starts. 10%. Take a shot. Trust God. Test God. But then, just careful what you do because you pray that God reveals himself and shows you some parts of his character and his grace that are even beyond what you think you ought to just be able to get away with. Man, that's where it gets fun. That's where you kind of right at you. <laughs> this is hilarious. <laughs> That's, that's where it gets fun. That's, that's where you start, to, you start to kind of slide the scale beyond 10%, and you, you, you get to places where, where people pray about it. And maybe they're living on 10%, and they're, they're giving 90% to, to a lot of different things, but it starts, it starts with elementary school fundamental basics. And, and here's the great thing about this. If you're not a Christ follower, you're exempt from this. You, this. you just kind of step back and go, hey, okay, cool. That's good for y'all. I just got a 10% bump. But if you are a Christ follower, the tithe, that's where it starts. That where it's, that's where it begins. And, and what happens is we start to get our financial house in order. And when we get our financial house in order, we start to experience the peace of God that passes perception and understanding. We, we start to experience the God who is a God of order and not of disorder. He's a God of peace and not of unrest. And, and when we start to get our house in order, then, then we, we understand where, where things are coming in and where they're going out. You know, Julie and I discovered something really fascinating about three years ago that changed everything for us. We discovered that everybody, everybody is on a diet. Did you know that? Everybody's on a diet. And that doesn't mean that everybody is eating kale. Not that there's anything wrong with that. But it means that the word diet just means what you put in your pie hole. It's just what you, what you put in your body is a diet. And, and we make a choice with our diet that's based on fuel or feelings. Yeah, that just, man, and can I tell you something? Sunday afternoon is the hardest day of the week for me to eat healthy and lean. When, when I finish on Sunday, man, I am spent, done. And, and, and there's, there's a little voice in my head that's going, yeah, 
you need the carbs. You, you need the cheeseburger, bruh. There's another little voice that's going, hey, you worked hard. You kind of deserve it. And, and that little voice is from the pit of hell. <laughs> but but that's, that's diet. The same thing is true for every single one of us financially. Every single one of us is on a budget. I, I know I said it. I'm sorry. It's church. But we're on a budget. We, we all have income and outgo. The question is, do we know what's actually happening versus what we kind of feel like ought to be happening, what we hope is happening? I want you to put a date down on your calendar. Two weeks from today, Sunday, May the 20th. Sunday, May the what? 20th. Sunday, May the 20th. Right after the 11 o'clock service, we're going to offer a class taught by our very own Mike Valentin called Financial Peace. It is a game changer. It doesn't matter where you are financially. It doesn't matter where you are in life. It doesn't matter where you are in a family. Financial peace. Mike is brilliant at explaining and teaching and training how to manage the resources that God's entrusted to you. And again, doesn't matter if it's a little bit or a big bit. It's all God's stuff he's given to you. So financial peace happens right after the service. Free O charge. It costs free 99 you can go to lhc.org slash events, sign up to show up. And the reason we ask you to sign up is so that we've got enough materials and food for you. There'll be child care provided. I mean, it's, it is a no-brainer, especially going into summertime. Summer and Christmas, people lose their minds financially. So I'm telling you, two weeks from today, do whatever you need to do to be a part of financial peace. This, this is an offering. This is something we're giving to help, to help. Because this ain't about the money. It's about the heart. It, it's, it's about the heart. And the heart is ultimately, the heart's ultimately all God's ever cared about anyway. Now, how the heart plays out, how the heart leads and guides our motives, our desires, our, our thoughts, our words, and our actions, those, those things, they actually do matter. But it's ultimately a heart issue. And the heart, the heart is what Jesus came to restore, to heal, to bring back to life. For anyone who would believe in him. I want to ask you to bow your heads for just a brief moment. As we've said throughout, all roads lead to the cross. And yes, the financial management, the, the ownership issue and the stewardship issue matter, but they matter only so much as they reveal and reflect the heart. If you're here today and you've never stepped into a relationship with Christ and experienced real freedom, actual peace, then we want to give you the opportunity to do that right now. Just to pray right where you're sitting, to step into that relationship. 
to pray a prayer of commitment, a prayer of beginning. Just silently, right where you are, just talk to God and say something like this. Just say, Jesus, you are God and I am not. And I need you. I need your forgiveness, your grace, and your truth. And so right here and right now, I confess my sin to you. Flush it out of my life so that I can claim your forgiveness so that I can turn and walk with you in relationship. And Jesus, in exchange for your life, I give you mine. All of it. Holding nothing back. And I pray this prayer in your name. If you would, for just a moment, I want to ask you to remain with your heads bowed and your eyes closed. Because for that man or that woman or that student who just prayed that prayer, this is the most important moment in your life. And as a church family, we want to help. We want to come alongside. We want to be a family with you. And so if you would, before you leave today, if you would just fill out the connect card that's in the program that you got when you came in, you can start right now just, just writing your contact information. You'll notice about halfway down, there's a place to indicate there, I, I committed my life to Christ today, this week. And once you finish that card, you can just tear it off at the perforation along the fold. And on your way out, hand it to one of our ushers or our hosts. They're the awesome, really attractive people wearing that cool blue shirt. But then number two, as our heads are bowed for another moment, if you would, if you just prayed that prayer, would you raise your hand? And just hold it up high for a moment. And in this moment, what, what you're doing is, is physically representing what God did spiritually in your life and you responded to. And you're, you're saying it's real. It happened. Once and for all. And so as a family, we want you to know that we love you and we celebrate that moment with you. And our family tradition is you can go ahead and put your hands down. And if you don't mind, we'd like to put our hands together just to tell you, welcome home. Welcome home.